are back. We talk on this program about how we are um, all about politics, current events, history, science, technology, whenever we damn well please. Unfortunately, when we talk about current events and politics, it's often a downer. Luckily, when we talk about science, it's oftentimes a rather up subject. Technology seems to be in the middle. When it springs off of science, it's oftentimes pretty cool. When it's affiliated with politics, it's like, ooh. So for this segment, I think we should start out with some of the more downer material first and move into the funner stuff as we go along. Let's talk about this item, how surveillance companies are selling your cell phone data. A piece in the Washington Post by Craig Timberg notes that documents from companies that develop cellular tracking systems, which are used by carriers to deliver calls and services to subscribers, showed last week how the firms are offering governments across the world access to that data. Turns out that just by using a phone number, the technology now allows governments to track a target's location within a few blocks. It should be noted that while many countries make it illegal for their governments to track their own citizens, there's no clear international legal standard for secretly tracking people in other countries. And boy, is there some potential for mischief there, eh? And we have to ask, how can it be that the S&P 500 keeps busting records this year again and again and again? I think it has broken the record 30 times, 30 plus times this year. It's noted that Investors are betting on signs of an improved U.S. economy. Well, if, if that's true, how come the economy isn't improving? Have corporations become so divorced from the population at large that they can be doing really well while we continue to do really poorly? That's the way it looks, isn't it? Of course, when it comes to economics, there seems to be no limit on foolishness. I had to laugh over this question to the motley fool which sometimes has some pretty pithy answers to economic Wall Street-type questions. This one dates back to July 6th. I've been sitting on it for a while. Somebody asked the fool, Since penny stocks are so inexpensive, I can buy thousands of them, which can make me richer faster. No? Answered the motley fools. Uh, Sorry, uh, no. Penny stocks might seem like bargains, but they won't necessarily grow faster than other stocks. As they note, a $1 stock and a $60 stock can both go up or down by the same percentage in one day. They go on to note that penny stocks, which trade for $5 or less per share, can be more likely to plummet than skyrocket. That's why they're penny stocks. But they say they're risky and often hyped and manipulated. Penny stock investors are typically looking to get rich quick, but that's not how reliable wealth building works. As they say, uh, penny stocks have made many people unhappy. It's fun to own 5,000 shares of something, but not when they crash. And last month, The Economist took a look at mutual fund managers. Made some interesting observations. In fact, the piece started off by noting a quote, The harder I practice, the luckier I get, according to Gary Player, one of the world's great golfers. They note that while it's a widespread belief that experienced professionals are a lot better than neophytes, uh, they ask, is that true of fund managers? And a new study suggested that the answer is distinctly mixed. A paper examined the records of 2,846 American mutual funds between the start of 1996 and the end of 2008. They were overseen by 1,825 managers. Some looked over more than one fund. They note that turnover was high, 
Fewer than a quarter of the managers lasted more than five years, and only 195 lasted a decade. But the punchline of the piece, I think, was that the authors concluded that even long-term managers show no ability to beat the market on a risk-adjusted basis. And also last month, The Economist had a look at a man named Warren Bennis. I think we should have a word on that summary here. To quote from the magazine, Warren Bennis was the world's most important thinker on the subject that business leaders care more about than any other, themselves. When he started writing about leadership in the 1950s, the subject was a back road. When he died, on July 31st of this year, it was an eight-lane highway crowded with superstar professors whizzing along in multi-million dollar muscle cars. Mr. Bennis produced about 30 books on leadership. Some of them are considered classics, like On Becoming a Leader, 1989. Magazine notes that all are surprisingly readable, stuffed with anecdotes, examples, and literary references. They went on to note that if Peter Drucker was the man who invented management, as a book about him claimed, then Warren Bennis was the man who invented leadership as a business idea. Central to his thinking was a distinction between managers and leaders. Managers were people who like to do things right. Leaders are people who do the right thing. Managers have their idea on the bottom line. Leaders have their eye on the horizon. Bennis would argue that failing organizations are usually overmanaged and underled. And the magazine goes on. Mr. Bennis believed leaders are made, not born. He taught that leadership is a skill, or rather a set of skills that can be learned through hard work. He likened it to a performance. Leaders must inhabit their roles as do actors. He noted that it meant self-discovery. The magazine notes that Mr. Bennis knew whereof he spoke. He spent a small fortune on psychoanalysis as a graduate student, dabbled in channeling and astrology while a tenured professor, and wrote a wonderful memoir, Still Surprised. And uh, this correspondent is surprised to note (laughs) the correlation between a guy writing about corporate leadership and a belief in astrology. Hmm. They went on to note in the last quarter of the 20th century... Mr. Bennis was often in despair. He loathed the masters of the universe who boasted about how many jobs they'd nuked and how much money they'd made. On Becoming a Leader is full of prophetic warnings about corporate corruption, extravagant executive rewards, and short-termism. He also lamented the quality of leadership in Washington. I have to admit, I never read any of his books, but I think I must agree, we, we do have some leadership issues going on everywhere. Well, one place in particular we see some leadership issues are in Israel, where apparently on August 31st, the Israeli government made the largest appropriation of occupied West Bank land in a generation. It took a thousand acres of virgin hills for a proposed new city. It's rather horrible to note that as extremist as Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be to this uh, correspondent, he's pretty much a moderate among Israeli politicians as far as the attitude about expanding settlements goes. Another wonderful tidbit that was on public access television last week was a program about what's going on in Israel. They were talking to Robert Fisk and others who write more, um, shall we say, hard-hitting pieces about the occupation, about the settlement building, about the treatment of the Palestinians. Um, More hard-hitting than what you're liable to see in the American press, which is extremely cowed by... The lobbying efforts, the PR firms, and the political realities, I think, here in the U.S. 
IPAC is considered to be the most effective uh, and powerful lobbying agency in Washington, D.C. And uh, anyone who has the slightest indication of having a balanced perspective gets a lot of grief from IPAC, which is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. I'm sorry to note I did not write down the name of that um, public affairs broadcast. It was on local cable, so I cannot uh, refer you to it, dear listener. But if you noodle around, I'm sure you'll find um, some useful information. We are still going to work on bringing you Tony Wheeler uh, to talk about his books, uh, both Badlands and Darklands. One chapter is about Israel and Palestine. And I think Tony Wheeler just has a knack for summarizing what's going on in various places around the world, and hopefully we can have a discussion about this with him. And one thing I don't want to say a hell of a lot about, but I I just am scratching my head over, is the fact that uh, apparently, according to some intelligence experts, the executioner, in at least one of these ghastly videos which were put online, courtesy of the Islamic State, are believed based on some voice recognition technology to perhaps uh, involve a former rapper from London. We're certainly no fans of the thuggish themes, which seems seem to constantly turn up in rap music, but this has really taken it, uh, taken it to the limit. According to The Independent, uh, this suspected murderer, former rapper, underwent a macabre transformation uh, some years back, where he went from posting photos of himself posing in a baseball cap in a London recording studio to tweeting pictures of himself in Syria, masked, and holding a severed head. One final disturbing item before we move on to happier topics would be this, which I'm going to just read from from the Week magazine. A blizzard of high-energy impacts tore apart the fuselage of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 over Ukraine on July 17th, according to a preliminary Dutch air investigation. Now, what I'm blown away by is the sentence that follows that, which is, the finding is consistent with the theory that a ground-to-air missile downed the Boeing 777 airliner, killing all 298 people on board. Apparently, some are claiming that this aircraft was shot down by a fighter jet. Wouldn't that be more consistent with a blizzard of high-energy impacts than a ground-to-air missile? I'm certainly no expert on... um, military weaponry, but if you have any insight on this, please feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I know that people in positions of authority uh, have a habit of sometimes just looking the camera right in the eye, as it were, and just lying. Case in point, recently on television, I saw a program talking about the mysteries of Malaysia Airlines planes disappearing. In this case, it was the one that just, you know, went off the radar in Southeast Asia, presumably crashed in the Indian Ocean. The program talking about it rightfully criticized the Malaysian government for allowing a search to go on in the wrong ocean when they knew with certainty they would not find the aircraft there. But then a U.S. Department of Transportation spokesperson was talking about how, well, there's all these conspiracy theories that started arising, which, which can happen, of course. Look at TWA Flight 800. There was all this notion about it being shot down by a missile. And now we know that a um, spark in the center fuel tank caused the plane to explode, and, you know, that, that was the real reason. This is a pet peeve of ours on this program, so we have to ask yet again, how can it be that the Boeing 747 aircraft has a design flaw in it 
which causes it to sometimes spontaneously explode, according to official uh, analysis. And yet, they never grounded the world fleet. They never retrofitted them with corrections. And therefore, they cannot assure you and I that, you know, the next time we fly in a 747, it might not just blow itself up. And the reality, of course, is that 747s do not spontaneously blow up due to a design flaw. The plane was downed by a missile of some sort. All right, we've got to lighten the mood here. Let's go to New Scientist magazine, September 13th issue. Fascinating headline, Weird Creatures May Be Relics from Dawn of Animal Life. Noted the magazine. Is it a mushroom? Is it a jellyfish? No, it's Dendrogramma a new animal so bizarre in appearance it has defied attempts to place it in the vast animal kingdom. The two mushroom-shaped species of Dendrogramma were dragged up from the seabed off southeast Australia in 1986 by Jean Just of the Natural History Museum of Denmark, and they've only now been studied. They belong somewhere in the lowest branches of the animal evolutionary tree. Everyone agrees on that, apparently. They're perhaps related to jellyfish or to another primitive group called comb jellies. But unlike jellyfish, dendrogramma lack stinging tentacles, and unlike comb jellies, they're missing a comb of hairs. According to Dr. Just, they most closely resemble the Ediacarans, a group of enigmatic organisms that most biologists think disappeared half a billion years ago upon the rise of animals. Said Just, their internal system shows a branching pattern similar to some of the Ediacaran fossils, Others say the similarities with ediacarans may be superficial. Guy Narbonne of Queen's University in Ontario said dendrogramma has a relatively simple shape, and so any similarities with the external shapes of ediacaran taxa could well be coincidental. DNA analysis might help to settle this, but it's going to require some new specimens. The chemicals they used to preserve those animals in 1986 have apparently rendered their DNA unsuitable for study. Interesting stuff. Some years back, we talked about these mysterious fossils which predate the so-called Cambrian Explosion, where all sorts of life just appeared. Uh, most, of the, most of the types of life that we know today started out about a half billion years ago. But before that, there are some fossils of these strange, feathery-like creatures that uh, have defied explanation. And it would be very interesting if these things they found off Australia are some living fossils, as it were. We'll continue to follow this story. And another bombshell from the current edition of New Scientist is, uh, well, the article was titled Rock from a Hard Place. A piece by Linda Grossman said it was a mineral so remarkable it shouldn't have existed. So what on earth had made it? The article notes that in the real world, you can take most materials and look at them in an electron microscope and any crystalline solid, from diamond to silica to graphite, will show you a characteristic diffraction pattern because the atoms align themselves in a regularly repeating way. Now, the real world, endlessly repeating repetition, is kind of the, the rule of the day. But mathematicians, taking a look at how you could stack up different geometric forms, have noted that uh, it is theoretically possible to construct something that doesn't repeat over and over again, but can keep extending out indefinitely as you add pieces to the mix. The analogy is to that of tilings invented by physicist Roger Penrose. Penrose took various parallelogram-shaped tiles and worked them into what's called a quasi-crystalline structure. 
It never quite repeats, but you can extend it outward indefinitely. Well, some started to ask whether this could exist in nature here on Earth. And apparently if you're clever about how you examine various types of rock, you'll be able to see a signature indicating that you have a quasi-crystalline structure on your hands. And indeed, back in 1984, scientists thought they had found such a structure in nature and published a paper which they called quasi-crystals, a new class of ordered structures. Not everybody bought into this. Most notoriously, the Nobel Prize-winning chemist Linus Pauling declared, there's no such thing as quasi-crystals, only quasi-scientists. But by 1987, the tide began to turn when a group at MIT created an alloy of aluminum, copper, and iron with an incontrovertibly quasi-crystalline diffraction pattern. Now, it turned out these, these sorts of quasi-crystals are very difficult to make, but it's worth trying to do so because they have some very interesting properties. They're very hard, they have low friction, and they're good thermal insulators. So they could provide protective coatings and everything from airplanes to non-stick cookware to thermoelectric materials that convert waste heat into electricity. After they learned that um, these structures might be very useful but are hard to make, someone thought, well, why don't we look in nature very carefully because if nature's found a way to do it, it means there's got to be some simpler way. So, yes, at some point, <laughs> researchers thought, we have found a rock which apparently came from Siberia, which appears to be quasi-crystalline in structure. The problem was, by the time they got through analyzing it, they'd scraped away so much of it, there was only a tiny grain left. So for further analysis to proceed, like those animals off of Southeast Australia, they needed to find some fresh specimens. The detective work on this gets pretty interesting. They sent the grain that was left of the material from nature off to a Caltech, to have its O2 isotopes analyzed, and they said it precisely matched that of a class of meteorites called CV3 carbonaceous chondrites that date back 4.5 billion years to the solar system's beginning. There was also some silicate material attached, which forms only in high temperatures and pressures, which suggested to scientists that perhaps this mineral they had had formed in a high-speed collision of a couple of asteroids out in space and the chunks of which eventually fell to Earth. I strongly recommend you read this piece to determine how it was they were able to go out and find some more specimens. It was quite a series of uh, lucky encounters. The data on the original rock noted that it came from uh, the Koryak Mountains in Siberia, which doesn't narrow it down very much. It's one of the biggest ranges in Siberia. Also, the rock in question was one of 10,000 sold to a museum in 1990 by a collector called Nico Koakuk from Amsterdam. They couldn't find him either. Now, this quasi-crystalline rock was um, originally identified as being cotyrite, and it turned out they did find one other specimen of this, which was in Russia. It had been donated by a man named Leonid Rezin, former head of the Soviet Platinum Institute. When he was asked about it, he denied any knowledge. But by scientists stumbling upon the man named Koakuk's widow, still living in Amsterdam, and finding some apparently secret diaries about his searches for minerals they were able to locate where in siberia they'd found this and were able to actually locate the man who'd gone out and gathered the rock himself so fast forwarding along yes they were able to go back out and get some more specimens of this stuff and i'm sure there's going to be more information about this as time goes on and we'll we'll try and talk about that
But isn't it interesting that, uh, as in so many things, nature finds a way to do it before, long before man stumbles upon uh, another method. Of course, I'm not sure how this is going to help uh, people manufacture more quasi-crystals. Hard to envision them going out into space and slamming asteroids together. But then again, maybe they will be able to simulate high-speed, high-energy collisions on Earth, followed by rapid cooling. I don't know. And by God, as often happens, good things come in threes. The same issue of New Scientist has a fascinating piece about RNA, which we don't have time to go into in any detail today. But just to quote briefly from the article titled The Wander Stuff by Colin Barris, RNA, the less famous relative of DNA, has turned out to be an extraordinarily versatile molecule. One of the many recent discoveries about it one of the most surprising, surely, is that it doesn't always stay put in cells. It can go walkabout. Some forms of the molecule leave cells and go traveling, carrying vital information that can influence other cells in the same body, and astonishingly, even other organisms. We've only just begun studying this phenomenon, but it's already clear that it will be incredibly useful. Not only can these wandering RNAs be used as pesticides, They can also protect simple animals like honeybees from viruses. The big question, of course, is whether we too can be influenced by foreign RNAs. Wow. All right, we'd also like to talk about a wonderful summary in New Scientist, the August 30th issue, about um, vitamins and minerals and what can really be said about these nutritional supplements. And unfortunately, we don't have time to really do this one justice, so we're going to have to postpone that discussion. Since we are up against it on time, let's do a short item. This comes from the letters to the editor section of New Scientist. To quote from it, our most discovery of the week was that the theorem that all headlines that are questions invite the answer, of course not, actually has a name or names. Well, the first name came from Betteridge's Law of Headlines, which the magazine found confusing, but they note that uh, further looking up came up to Hinchcliffe's Rule. This applies to scientific publications, in which the magazine noted they were astonished that it had eluded them for decades. It was named after Ian Hinchcliffe of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. They note, the most succinct expression is in a paper filed as a preprint under the name Boris Peon and dated... 1988. It's entitled, Is Hinchcliffe's Rule True? Question mark. And its abstract reads, Hinchcliffe has asserted that whenever the title of a paper is a question with a yes-no answer, the answer is always no. Now, our gut feeling tells us that the answer to this question cannot always be no, but we're not philosophers. <laughs> and so uh, we're kind of on some shaky ground. But this is a topic worthy of further discussion. Just not today. All right. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I think we should take a break. 